Hi everyone, I'm Octi Dukanya, an investor with Octopus Ventures and focus on deep tech investments across Europe. I'm actually very excited to be hosting this panel with some stellar speakers. Today we have Chinu Senku Kumar, who co-founded and is general partner at Xfinity. I'm not going to go down the list of accolades he's received, but for one of them, the noted one is obviously the National Technology Award by the President of India when he was in college. Joining him, we have Pranav Pai, who is an engineer by training and the chief investment officer at 314 Capital, an early stage venture capital out of Bangalore. When he's not helping founders and doing investments, he and his wife love to cook all sorts of cuisine. And last but not the least, we have Arjun Rao, general partner at Speciale Invest, which he co-founded with his college friend. So after being a founder twice, he definitely understood what not to do and thus turned VC and focused largely on deep tech and B2B. In his free time, Arjun is an avid poker player and especially enjoys watching test cricket. So thank you for joining us today. It is an absolute pleasure, all three of you. Great. Thank you for having us. Thank you. To kick things off, I probably wanted to start with Arjun. Arjun, deep tech is quite a big word. It has just taken its own meaning in the venture capital industry. So I would love to understand from you how you have defined it yourself over the years that you've been investing. Thank you, Akriti, uh, for the kind introduction and the first uh, you know, entry into this. Deep tech uh, is, I think, something that is an evolving term, right? We also use it quite loosely. You know, people also use frontier tech, hard tech, uh, as synonyms for the same, right? In our mind, uh, over the last four years since we started the firm and we, since we started investing, what we are seeing is there are multiple areas in which technology has emerged and has leapfrogged and has broken through in terms of certain paradigms that have enabled new types of technologies, new types of products to get built, right? And with those fundamentals in place, uh, there's also some cross-pollination of sectors that are coming together, right? So obviously one of the primary things that has happened over the last decade or so is how computation has evolved, right? And how AI therefore has really taken, uh, has come to the forefront. So that's an example of how now AI can solve multiple problems across industries, right? So we look at deep tech to say something that is non-trivial to solve, right? Something that is at the intersection of more than one technological domain and to solve substantially complex problems in specific industries that lead to, in a way to say, 10x improvement from how things are done today, right? And if you put all these things together, those are the type of companies that we are super excited about investing in. Uh, broadly, we look at, you know, deep tech investing within software. In software, enterprise software, there is AI, machine learning, obviously, computer vision, NLP, uh, there is a substantial innovation happening in cloud and infrastructure, right? Uh, and, and how infrastructure is managed. There is emerging areas in software such as uh, uh, quantum computing, which is backed by certain hardware features as well, right? These are broad areas that we are super excited about that we've already invested in. On the hardware side, I think it's just a gamut of things that is there, right? And one can build thesis around how engineering, uh, AI, you know, battery technology, these things are coming together, right? Autonomous is a strong theme that is happening. 
electric vehicles is a strong theme but there's always a software layer pretty much across all these industries today that we are super excited about right we're doing space technology this 3d printing that is coming into play right these are all emerging areas and what it means is entrepreneurs need to come with depth and background from these domains not just anybody can just start building deep tech products right and yeah. that's kind of another variable and differentiator look at what is deep tech no arjun that was really really good thank you so clearly deep tech is defined as quite broad mostly like you said very complex and non trivial products so chino i would be very curious to understand uh maybe give us a bit of a history lesson given the fact that you've been in the uh, ecosystem for so long how has the deep tech ecosystem evolved in the country chino you're on mute <laughs> thank you uh so it's uh, great and i'll just uh, continue from where arjun started actually i think you know if you look at the evolution in the last 5 uh, to 7 years because if you look at technology r&d has been happening in india more than 10 years because start with services then move to r&d that's the time i had come to india and set up sandisk actually in the last 5 7 years there has been uh, there were green shoots in deep tech uh, startups actually i think you know if you look at essentially uh, for a deep tech startup to thrive you need four five key ingredients one actually you need domain knowledge founders actually it could be either somebody who has done phd in that area or worked in industry for 5 to 10 years and understand the road map of the big tech company so when a potential acquirer looks at it he's aligned his product is aligned with the road map actually the second thing is actually you need to have a customer who understand the nuanced offerings actually right and so far if, if you talk about 5 years back um you know like there were a lot of big companies were were actively buying in silicon valley the startups actually but i'll come to that a little bit later about india system but i think that's that's the another key ingredient the third the important thing in deep tech uh, uh, startup you need to have a patient capital because unlike in other startups the adoption cycles could be longer so the vcu approach or the companies where you invest you need to have patience to make sure that the customer adoption cycle goes through actually so just now let's let's kind of try to map it to india so 5 7 years back we started investing in companies because there was a lot of expatriate population who may have done phd in us or ms they worked in us for 5 10 years actually they want to come back to india instead of you know choosing to work for a company in india they prefer to uh, invest in companies such as they prefer to start found a company that's how we invested in a company called match street den which is in chennai um so this couple actually they did work in us and uh, you know the cto anand actually he was a, he worked in stanford actually so when they came back to india they definitely wanted to start up actually and similarly you know like there's a lot of people who go abroad and come back they understand the product knowledge the product ecosystem they prefer to set up startups actually that's one thing the second one the indians who are in silicon valley they are actually uh, tapping into the talent either in bangalore or hyderabad actually so we have a company called deep vision which is founded by two stanford phd guys and actually the engineering team is in hyderabad actually so this was the case in the last 4 5 years but off late if you look at what is happening india itself there are a lot of deep tech uh, companies are coming addressing indian market needs so we have a company called lognine materials see so if you look at um, you know like tesla has come up with electric cars which predominantly leverages lithium ion uh, batteries actually but if you look at lithium ion 
it uh, it has its own challenges when it when you bring it to india or asia because the public infrastructure the public charging infrastructure is completely different and it has its own challenges actually so where do you have the parking lot to park a car and charge for four five hours actually so we have a company this company called log9 materials which has come up with a metal air battery which does not require uh, charging in fact you put aluminum rods uh, which basically basically go through electrochemical reaction and based on that you get energy actually so i think the point is there were companies if you look at deep tech they were addressing a lot of global needs but now i see deep tech companies addressing india needs global needs or asia needs actually and if i may add one more company uh, in our ecosystem called vernacular because if you look at vernacular.ai if you look at big tech companies in silicon valley they are addressing english speaking market so this unaddressed market is like asia like especially when it come to vernacular languages where you want to have rich user experience so this company addresses uh, you know the vernacular language needs which goes into multiple technical layers actually and uh, they have solutions for india as well as south asia actually so i think you know to sum it up i think the deep tech is here to stay and it is uh, going to expand a lot and i i do see a bright future actually in india sitting from india yeah right. i know it it is uh, at least sitting from the outside in it's very exciting to see what growth has happened given the fact that i sit outside in europe and i look inside so it's been really really interesting pranav maybe on to you on uh, going further into the question like uh, chinu said really deep tech company need very strong supply chains like you know you need foundries for silicon fabs you need large labs for uh, quantum computers you need a uh, food production labs for that matter and this morning actually in our keynote uh, chris kopal krishnan mentioned that we need more labs to market success stories in india so what do you think like the ecosystem like governments universities private in institutions can do to make this a reality because it's pretty much an ecosystem that needs to work together at this point yeah it's a great question akriti uh, you know uh, i'll speak about bangalore as a case study because you know most of us are from here when we're talking about deep tech you know and i in fact both sit out of the same office uh, bangalore is a unique city uh, it's got around 800 colleges 100 engineering colleges it graduates 90000 engineering students every year uh, it's got the highest concentration of gccs in the country close to 35% of gccs in india are in bangalore so the concentration of talent in this one city uh, it's it's undeniably uh, a big asset that the city must exploit but when you go to the deep tech ecosystem and you and you talk to founders you talk to the uh, domain experts you talk to the academics and you talk to government and the corporates of course uh, you look at all the stakeholders i think uh, how they all come together and start working towards a 10 20 year vision uh, that's been taking time and that hasn't happened in an organized way like it happens for example in the valley uh, they've been very organized in taking research funding from the government into universities into commercialization and then to ipo yeah uh, that crank has been running for decades now uh, so i think we're seeing now just the start of some of those big flywheels in in, in india uh, for example i know you had dr anand kumar on the last panel i'm sure he explained how the department of biotechnology a uh, kick started this entire wave i think they supported over 150 biotech companies now with grant funding seed funding patent patent reimbursements and so on so we think that really over the last 5 years like both arjun and chinu have said uh, we're seeing these these big uh, life cycles crank up uh, so certainly in bangalore you'll find the biotechnology uh, the biotechnology engine is live we're finding some tremendous talent coming together building companies 
based upon commercialization of patents. Uh, these are these are unique assets. These are usually competing with global uh, companies, not just for markets and and customers, but also for funding. Uh, so we think that it starts with governments taking a very important long-term view and taking ownership of kickstarting that cycle. Uh, that's when we see the academics and and the universities come in, come into the picture. So I mentioned Bangalore as an example. Uh, in spite of having a hundred engineering colleges. Uh, the city uh, barely has the commercialization path from patent uh, to startup. Uh, I think we have less than 100 patents that have been commercialized over the last five years. That's, that's pitiably small uh, compared to the total patent volume, compared to the total startup volume even across the country. So I think the next big wave that we will see, I think it's starting very quickly now with IIIT and so on taking leadership, uh, we'll see academia step up. And, and I'm pretty sure that they will take uh, a lot of serious talent into the into into the equation uh, when they're thinking about commercialization of that IP. And then, of course, it's it's VCs and investors, right? Uh, VCs and investors cannot come before the government, cannot come before uh, the the patent, the IP itself. Uh, so we think that's where, for example, Arjun's team at Especial they've done fantastic work. Uh, they're funding really bleeding edge technologies. Xfinity is doing that. We are trying in our own way. Uh, so we think that there'll be this. Uh, gray layer that gets pulled out of universities, out of GCCs, out of corporates. And that, that nexus is where you'll see VCs adding value. So you, you, we've seen this happen over the last five years. We think it's going to happen at a much more rapid pace starting 2021. Uh, certainly the call for Atmanirbhar Bharat uh, for more local funding, hopefully with a good budget, uh, more incentives for investments by the large corporates as well, uh, more incentives to invest in R&D and acquisition. We should hopefully see that accelerate much faster now. And I think uh, this decade should certainly be the, the playground for many more deep tech startups out of India. No, thank you, Prano. Actually, yeah, I think it's a matter of timing. And what we saw probably in Silicon Valley 30 years ago is coming, hopefully going to come true in the next decade that we're going to look after. Just on that point, maybe, uh, and really anybody who has an opinion can chime in on this one. Uh, but uh, very curious to understand why there are only far and few between deep tech investors. So, you know, when I went around the house in India, Speciale, Xfinity, Yuga, uh, 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 314 capital came up, but they were very far and few. So why is it the case that there are not that many deep tech VC investors yet and still people focused on B2C, B2B sort of like models? I think maybe I'll take that. Um, so I think it's uh, probably the evolution of, uh, you know, it will take some, it's a bit part of the evolution. See, if you look at the VC fund, uh, probably about 10 years back, it was more like B2C. Then it shifted to B2B. I think probably you would have noticed during the pandemic time uh, more focus on B2B actually. I think it's a natural evolution and the deep tech will, uh, we see a lot of reception to deep tech companies in the recent uh, couple of years actually. Uh, many funds are thinking about it actually. And more and more companies are shifting or giving equal focus or almost importance to B2B actually. It's a natural evolution of time actually. That's what I would look at it actually. And, and do you see that? Do you see that in the later stages as well, where uh, deep tech companies are able to raise uh, further on capital versus just seed stage capital? So I think that's, that's an interesting question. I think it will probably take a few years. The later stage, probably you had to go to Silicon Valley and other places or corporate venture funds. But definitely, I do see uh, VCs investing in seed stage or pre-series A, actually. And probably, you know, three to five years down the road, uh, you know, there could be some developments in India where VC funds could look at later stage companies also. 
Got it. No, thank you. I think I'll maybe ch change a bit of tack to really understand how you guys think about investing. So as far as we've known, VC is about understanding patterns among teams, business models, what works, what doesn't work. But just the nature of deep tech is pretty unique, right? Every scientific experiment breakthrough, it's quite unique. So how do you guys think about a VC mindset and pattern recognition on the deep tech side? Um Maybe I'll take a shot there. And uh, usually what one has to see is, and if you look at the VC landscape in general, right, most funds, even in the regular B2C and the B2B domain, start building thesis, right? And build thesis around industries, how industries are changing and how trends are happening, right? And it sometimes can filter down from macroeconomic conditions, socioeconomic con conditions that are there and prevalent in a particular market. And from there, you start realizing, okay, these waves are happening or will happen and therefore you do some extrapolation, right? Part of that is also true in the deep tech sense, but what one has to see is not, you know, macroeconomic conditions, but the technical evolution, right? And therefore one has to have a view to what history has provided in terms of technological evolution, right? Why is AI caught up in the last 10 years and not 20 years ago? Right? What were the key breakthroughs? Right? I think GPUs were a very interesting breakthrough. Right? The data availability was a very interesting breakthrough. Right? And that led to then, you know, we can bring these two things together. And the algorithms, of course, were always getting better. But if you talk to a lot of data science people, and uh, even 20 years ago or 30, 25 years ago, you'd say a lot of these algorithms and ideas were in place even much earlier. But the availability of data and the GPU compute availability is something that is a trigger point. Right. So unless we all understand history, I think we'll not be able to take a shot at even predicting the future. Right. So some of that of technical evolution, technological evolution is one way to look at saying, OK, what is coming in the next five years, 10 years? The other way, like in VC, I think we all should be humble enough to say we don't cannot build a thesis for every, everything. Therefore, be open to having conversations with academia, with researchers, with entrepreneurs on a continuous basis. and just hear and see new ideas on an everyday basis. And then serendipitously, one will find some substantial innovation, hopefully, that is super exciting, basis which one can you know, say, OK, let's build a thesis around this. We've never heard of this before, right? But this seems super exciting for multiple reasons, right? And that's where you do some pattern matching, saying this is possible. And maybe this is the right time to do it, right? Timing is among the hardest things to predict right in, in our uh, vocation but uh, you know i think i would mix it up into saying a little bit of background and history leading up to technological evolution for the future a little bit of serendipity bottom up meeting entrepreneurs and seeing ideas and then building pieces on top of that yeah i know i think uh, most of deep tech is really about team ip novel technology and being confident that they are the best in the world to be solving for this compared to across the globe. So I think there is a bit of history and looking forward. So once you've actually made the investment, let's say, how do you think about risk mitigation? Because there is no commercialization plan, right? That you will earn these many dollars in one year and second year and third year. So how do you guys think about uh, risk mitigation once you've made that investment? And how does growth in a deep tech company actually get measured? Yeah, I can take a go at that, Akriti. Uh, so really, uh, if you look at uh, what VCs are supposed to be good at, uh, it's we're supposed to be good at being able to preempt the mainstream. 
you know, if, if it's already a trend of today, if it's already something that's clearly hit product market fit as a, as a thesis overall, uh, it might already be too late for early stage firms to be investing in that particular in, in that particular proposition. Uh, so if you look at deep tech from that lens, deep tech is maybe one of the clearest uh, sectors that you would find this consistent need to be ahead, uh, preempting the mainstream. This consistent need to be building before there's really this vacuum up um, uptake uh, from the market. Uh, so to answer the question, what, what do we look at for risk mitigation? I think I completely agree with Arjun. The first thing you'd want to do is timing. Uh, you'd really want to get a hold of understanding where roadmaps are, where procurement uh, thinking is really right now. Uh, how, how much talent do you have uh, if you were to be able to attack this particular upcoming trend uh, on these roadmaps? And we can give you, a, you know, a dozens and dozens of examples of that being done right. Of course, much, many more examples of that being done wrong. Uh, but clearly, I think the things that stand out are domain experts who are able to plug out of those roadmaps because they've been large contributors to building them in the first place. Uh, coming out, starting companies, having the IP in place, being able to bring the talent together and build something up to the point where it's really valuable when trends have reached that gap in the roadmap. So the semiconductor ecosystem, for example, Chinu mentioned before, uh, is, a, is a shining example of how companies consistently acquire IP from outside and how teams leave large companies, build, those, build, those, build that IP outside and come back. So it's a very uh, virtuous cycle in that sense. Uh, so to, for risk mitigation, really, it comes down to uh, finding a mind match with the founders of that company, being able to see that the roadmaps are going to align a certain way, uh, bringing more determinism to being able to reach that, reach those set of objectives in those roadmaps as soon as possible. And of course, then convincing willing buyers uh, to pay up uh, a rate at which you actually make reasonable returns. Uh, so it can be done in a deterministic way if you look at it this way. But of course, it's easier said than done. Uh, and there are all, obviously always more failures and successes. So that's that's a broad framework for how you'd apply risk mitigation to this sector. And of course, it changes from biotechnology to semiconductors to AI. Uh, some sectors are so new, like quantum computing, for example, you don't even know you, you can't even really define uh, a predictable roadmap, right? It, it's really early for that entire trend uh, right there. So I think that's that's one useful framework we've found. We've applied it actually to, to a dozen companies we've invested in so far so good, uh, but that's one way we think about it. No, thank you. Actually, that uh, nicely leads into another question that I've been toying with is um, exactly like you said, quantum is probably seven to 10 years out. And you guys have obviously gone out and raised capital from LPs multiple times over. So very curious to understand how do you pitch that to the LPs? How does their risk appetite uh, match up? Because they are looking for returns in six to seven years or maybe eight years from a VC. And in deep tech, maybe the product is going to be ready in 10 years. So how does that match up when you guys go out talk to LPs? So I'll take that, uh, Kriti. Actually, you know, depends upon your fund life, actually, because uh, in, in fact, uh, from fund one to fund two to fund three, we are at fund three right now. Uh, one thing we realized uh, having a shorter cycle in your fund is going to be a big problem for deep tech, actually. So we have been consciously moving like, you know, five plus two to seven plus two to now nine plus two, actually. I think if you're thinking on taking a long term bet like quantum computing, I think you need to really check your uh, fund life cycle, actually. And I think probably that is probably 11 plus two, that kind of uh, fund life cycle, actually. But rest of the themes, what Arjun was talking about, say, mobility, autonomous vehicles, or even space tech, 
I think you can fit in within probably about 10 year life cycle actually. And usually the way it goes, um, you know, you probably work on the product. When they come to you, the, the entrepreneurs, when they come to you, they have some product. Uh, it may be like a you know product which is working, not ready for POC. And you kind of judge where they are in actually. And then you see who are the customers. And I think try to fit whether it will fit in your cycle actually. And I think definitely the deep tech funds should think about the uh, life cycle of the product where you are planning to uh, invest. And also you have to look at your own fund life cycle. It's very, very important actually. And there has been some adjustments going on. And, uh, but uh, LPs ask these questions, especially if you are planning to invest in quantum computing, this kind of, um, you know, technology, which is far out there. And sometimes, you know, like there are some investors want to put a bet, which is very, very futuristic also. So it's a mix of, you know, LPs response on there. I'll just add a quick note to that and maybe connecting both what Chinu said and Pranav mentioned earlier in terms of the framework mitigation. How can you bring this framework in front of LPs, right? And convince them that, okay, while it is taking four years, sometimes six years for commercialization, in the interim, there is some value creation that is happening. Now, how do you break down that four year and six year time frame and say in the first couple of years, you built a core part of the technology and showcased that the tech works, right? Which itself was in question. So there was a technical risk which got mitigated, which means the value of the company uh, and the entity should go up, right? And hopefully follow on investors come in and therefore show that uh, value increment. Again, from year number two to year number three, four, right? Maybe you start, you know, productizing that core tech and IP and building version one or pre-version one and showcasing it to also customers, prospective customers. You're still not selling it, but you're getting validation from the industry to say somebody, once ready, somebody is ready to buy. So LOIs are very important in this industry, right? Buyer will come in later and actually, you know, uh, buy later, but is willing to validate and do pre-evaluations and say that, yes, this is valuable. This seems to be working. This is the right technology. This is the right direction. And I could be a prospective customer. So MOUs, LOIs from large customers who do proper due diligence is a proxy for value creation, right? And we're seeing that, for example, in some of our space tech companies, a launch company is about two years, uh, you know, has been in operation for about four years. Their first launch is two years from now, but they have more than $100 million in LOIs lined up from customers, right? And that is proactive, act, you know, process by the founders to go and talk to customers, right? Product is not yet ready and it's not that they're launching next week, but they've gone and spoken to multiple small, medium or, or small and micro satellite providers. They have gotten validation from that. Now, all of these things should be bundled in and can be can lead to risk mitigation leading to value creation, right? Sometimes some of these companies can also get acquired just for the IP in an interim way, right? That are, those are also good wins for the ecosystem at large. I think, uh, you know, the LPs who have that view will also like that, right? But combinationally, I think uh, these things can be brought to the table to the LPs. Probably two questions come out of that for me is one, I think the IP strategy in India, like you spoke about IP rich companies and you know how um, these companies could be selling their IP at some point or 
early on in their journey. Uh, IP strategy in India has generally been weaker than the other countries. And I would love to maybe hear your thoughts on like how um, regulation or how the IP strategy is evolving and what can you see the future look like uh, in terms of that? So I'll, I'll take that, Akriti. Uh, just to add on to what Arjun was telling and uh, Pranav was telling, just to complete that. I think, you know, one of the key things I do look at an entrepreneur, especially in a deep tech, when they come to funding, they probably know who is whom they are going to sell it to three, four years down the road, actually. They may kind of say three, four guys, three, four companies. It could be Intel, Microsoft, or Google, or there may be four or five companies which may be buying their, they may be buying them, actually. Uh, so they kind of work backwards. So that's that's the kind of thing we look at it. In fact, when they come for pre-series A funding, we do look at who are the next funding. So these entrepreneurs should know who is likely to fund them in series A and series B stages. If they have worked out, either they can work with us to map it. I think you know you can risk mitigate and also you can segment and showcase the value in each and every stage, like Arjun was talking about. So coming to the IP, um, definitely for deep tech, uh, IP is very, very important because when companies are getting acquired, so though everyone says that I'm setting myself for IPO, sorry, uh, IPO, but most of the deep tech companies, they end up being acquired. And one of the reasons they get acquired mainly for IP value. And I think IP value is very, very important in that context. Actually, if you look at many of the companies which are acquired in Silicon Valley under $500 million, if the acquisition value is under $500 million, typically the sweet range is like 250 to $500 million. And many of them, they get acquired for IP. When I say IP, it is not just the patent alone. You have to obviously have a paying customers. These are all add-ons actually. But I think IP is the primary part actually. So if I look at compare and contrast with US patent system and India, I think we have miles to go in India. But I think there have been some positive encourage encouragements actually. Uh, so if you look at a lot of companies today from sitting from India, it could be a US company, but we're having operations in India, they end up taking PCT route. So you can file your patent in either US or Europe or Japan, wherever you're selling your product actually. That has been one positive step actually, which is not necessarily for India, for all over many countries actually. So you can actually take that route, though you, you, don't, you don't need to necessarily file everything in India actually. The second thing is actually, that you know that uh, you know like institutions like iit they have set up ip or chairs like in mit or you know like stanford they are actually trying to come up with tech commercialization value actually so if you have an ip how do you commercialize that is very very important i think we have uh, you know sowed the seeds in many of the iits actually it is also coming in the way and i think what i do see uh, in in ip is basically like we are probably 3 to 5 years away to fully understand and utilize the IP commercialization value, actually. But the right steps are happening right now as we speak, actually. No, that's that's actually great. And like to your point on IP commercialization, most of the founders who are probably building this are tech savvy or deep science background. So they're not commercial per se. And when you talked about how people need to have buyers in mind already, uh, you know, investors in mind who's going to fund them later, how do you how do we as investors can help them or how do you guys think about helping these tech first founders to become more commercial and think about that route? So yeah, that's 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 one of the job we do. Uh, we do spend a lot of time. In fact, uh, in our portfolio, uh, we have about twenty plus companies. 
we have encouraged all our portfolio companies, not all of them, but good majority of them to file IP patents. So we have close to 150 to 200 patents filed over the last five years, actually. So we do help them to route the right patent strategy for them. It could be a PCT route because there is a cost associated with it. And startups, you know, they need to work with a shoestring budget. So it is very important we help them factoring in that mind, where do they file the patent? And in fact, we even have a set of IP lawyers in Silicon Valley as well as in India. We do help them to uh, navigate that part, actually. That is one thing we do. And second, actually, is uh, we also try to assess the value of the IPs. There are ways you can assess the IP value uh, with, uh, you know, like pro bono work with IP lawyers, actually. We do help them, actually. And uh, there are, these are all steps we do that, actually, help them in the IP commercialization, actually. That's fantastic, actually. Um, uh, Pranav, maybe I'll be uh, uh, shifting a bit of gears, trying to understand what is interesting in the deep tech ecosystem, given you can't know everything, right? You can't know about quantum, you can't know about silicon, you can't know about the next day uh, uh, biotech. Uh, how do you quickly get up to speed with the various technologies? And are you more opportunistic or are you more thesis driven in your approach and from your funds perspective? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, Agrati. We are asked that every time we launch a new fund. So we have to have a good answer for that. Um, 314, thankfully, we've been able to define ourselves as a, as a generalist firm, uh, deep tech being one of five other sectors we're very deeply involved in. And in deep tech, uh, like I said before, uh, we don't always have the luxury of taking 10, 12 year cycles. Uh, we have a slightly more aggressive uh, fund term. Uh, that served us well so far because it gives us a discipline in terms of returning capital back and that's been uh, one of the reasons why we've been able to scale so quickly uh, but on the other side there are some business models that just cannot scale there are there are almost you know physical constraints on how quickly you can move in terms of drug discovery or uh, material science and a whole bunch of other things that we've looked at very carefully uh, so the one thing i think the first thing we've learned how to do uh, is we've learned how to study many different streams of innovation that India might have an advantage in, meaning we have talent or we have early access to uh, a, a willing market or we have a large pool of beta testers, whatever they might be, or our LPs are potential customers, we can bring them on uh, as beta, beta clients. Uh, so we, we've basically run a whole bunch of routines in figuring out what are the areas where we can kind of uh, fast track the IP development or the path to market. And the conclusion is that we can't do that for too many areas. Uh, so we'd love to do more material science. We'd love to do uh, more um, uh, battery technology. We'd love to do more uh, EV component innovation. But unfortunately, uh, in this country at this time, we haven't found too many ways in bringing an acceleration to some of that IP development. Uh, so those are areas, for example, where we haven't been able to do much work. But on the other side of that, uh, if, we, if we look at health, for example, uh, we recently funded a ballisto cardiography-based company uh, building a very interesting sensor platform for remote vitals diagnostics. So you just you put it under your mattress. Uh, there's no contact between the patient and the sensor mat, uh, but it's able to sense around eight different vital biosignals from your body in real time. Uh, use machine learning to uh, pass out the signals and then communicate that to, to the cloud uh, to a to a central uh, monitoring facility. Uh, so they were used during COVID. They were they were able to monitor 10,000 patients within two months. Um, so it's, these are just some examples of uh, where you can actually innovate and get faster to market. Uh, there are parts of this, obviously, because it's in health, uh, you can't take shortcuts. Uh, so I think uh, full kudos to the founders for being able to pull through something so radically different so quickly. 
but in, when it comes to going to market, the right hospitals, the right partners, the right customers, the right distributors, uh, like Chinu said, the right way to file, the right kind of patents, uh, that's where we can do a lot of work to make sure that uh, these are solved problems. So the founder doesn't need to spend time in thinking through some of these things. So that's how we think about deep tech. Uh, I'm happy to say uh, we've seen a lot of success in, in health, in agriculture, in the uh, fintech infrastructure environment, companies like Amazon, MasterCard, Reliance, uh, our customers of our companies in deep tech building some interesting fintech innovations there. Uh, we've seen some very interesting work happening in uh, semiconductor software as well. Uh, we have a company using machine learning to, uh, to extract bugs out of RTL design uh, 10 times faster than it typically takes a human team to do. So the, the bug finding cycle goes from three and a half years to one and a half years. Uh, so if you're able to, theoretically, of course, but if you're able to do that, that's a big win for semiconductor pipeline, design pipelines globally. And that's a very valuable company if it's able to work uh, to that extent. So these are the kind of ideas where we've seen that all the right factors can compress into the timeline that we have in our hands. And uh, equivalently, we're good enough to be able to add value to these domain experts, to these companies, and help get them there a little faster. So that's how we think about where 314 can be uh, more relevant uh, to some of these IP companies. Yeah, no, fair. That, that, that makes totally sense. Uh, maybe. Uh, thinking about founders now and trying to understand what should the founders keep in mind when picking the investor deep tech investor like how crucial is it because you know like all of you have just mentioned so far uh, you need patient capital you need people to be helpful you need to have people who can really help them with ip commercialization so very curious to hear what should the founders keep in mind how can they find out about all of the stuff that you all just told us so yeah, I think, I think, yeah sorry go ahead yeah thanks uh no, I think uh, obviously one has, from a founder perspective, they first of all will look for the kind of investors that have kind of maybe done this before, right? And have a track record of doing that. And that enables them to have both the patience as well as a framework to help them, right? Uh, the deep pockets are a definite advantage because you understand that it's going to take time and it's going to take a lot more capital, right? So if if you get investors that probably can follow through and double down on your future rounds, that's a further advantage. But largely, I would say, is there access to key expertise uh, in the industry that can enable any technical innovation that is coming out of the company to be validated, to get the right input and the feedback so that the iteration cycles are good, right? And uh, therefore, the company can adapt in the right form or shape, right, is very valuable. I think Pranav touched upon this by saying, can we bring in access to prospective customers, right, who will then take a look at your tech, give it some sort of feedback, and say we could be for early buyers, early users, and it can give feedback, right? So any investor who can enable that is of high value. Second, I think any investor that can partner in a fashion to say, when the founder and the founding team is heads down in execution, building technology, building business, right? Can we further assist them by having a worldview for that particular niche and domain, right? Which means we continue to do our research about what is happening in this particular niche and subsector in technological space in, let's say, Israel, let's say, China, let's say, America, right? And bring that knowledge in a synthesized fashion to the founders so that they know they're still at the cutting edge. Right, they know what is the competitive landscape, not just locally but at the global level, right? And when they are executing and their problem, they're not necessarily have the bandwidth to look at the global uh, 
uh, worldview. And I think the third part is, of course, anybody who can take them to the right sources of capital, right? It could be strategic sources of capital. It could be uh, large institutional sources of future capital or strategic buyers finally at the opportune moment, right? I think these two or three things, if an investor can bring to the table for deep tech founders, I think that can be immensely valuable. Maybe the fourth thing which you yourself touched upon is, you know, bring that lens of keep the customer in mind and keep commercialization in mind, even if it is a few years away, right? And don't be research, purely research-oriented founders, right? Bring, uh, bring them out of their shell. Maybe that is the fourth thing that I would have. I think yeah, Arjun has really uh, put it out nicely. I would add one more thing. Uh, in many cases, uh, when the single founder or two founders with technical understanding, they come to investors. We do help them to even hire the CEOs because the founder uh, may not be wanting to run the company. In fact, in a couple of cases, we have helped to hire the CEO. We identified the right kind of CEO for the company and we did a matchmaking actually. So that's in addition to like opening up CXO door uh, in Fortune 500 companies for POC and trials. I think they do look at um, your help in IP commercialization. They do look at uh, bringing right out of talent uh, to the team. Uh, there are many ways we get involved. Actually, in fact, we take board seat in each and every company we invest, and we are very, very hands-on. That's one of the USB we, USB we climb, actually. On that point, basically, when you all have talked about how much I'll help the founder, how much of this needs, because the patient capital comes from outside right now, you don't have Series B, Series C, deep tech investors, how much time do you invest probably in your India-US relationship and your cross-border relationships. I know, you know, you all have presence in the US, but would be lo love to understand how you guys have helped companies probably go from India to the US for that matter. So actually, you know, like uh, out of our, thanks, uh, out of this, it's a good question, actually. Um, uh, out of this 20 plus companies we have, 10 of them are registered in U US actually. Either they have headquarters in US and with engineering operations or subsidiary in India, or in few cases, for uh, reaching out to customers, they have flipped the company to US also. So we have helped them in the process both ways. And uh, to your specific question, how much time we spend with, um, you know, like uh, US investors or outside of Indian investors, I would say significant amount of time. Because each and every company uh, we invested, uh, many of the reasons they choose to, uh, you know, like take investment because nowadays getting capital is not that difficult. If you have a very good idea, if you have a very good background, getting capital is not that difficult. The reason why they would choose a particular VC is the kind of network they bring it to the table, either in the form of uh, the CXO network for customer trials or the next stage investment. So we have, you know, after uh, we invested, Sequoia invested in four of our companies and Axel has invested. So we do help almost each and every company in the next stage investment and Tire Global and several, several funds actually we work with them. I would say 25% of my time goes into that. Yeah, uh, I think I, I completely agree. I think a large part of what uh, deep tech I, uh, deep tech founders look to VCs uh, in terms of guidance for uh, is for capital development. Uh, we found three geographies are most uh, I'd say most comfortable working with Indian founders, cross border structures. The US, of course, Japan is warming up significantly, and now there are pockets of uh, investors from mainland Europe as well as Singapore. Uh, I think these four geographies broadly. Uh, have seen one generation of successful Indian, um, you know, Indian Indian partnerships uh, in those countries. Founders have gone across borders. Companies have been set up with large R&D teams in India. 
Uh, I think, however, uh, there's still a the, a very a very important question on their minds. If there's so much talent here, if there's so much IP being generated here, uh, if these are really good companies, uh, why isn't there more Indian capital in these startups? Uh, why are they coming out of India so early, right? So that's that's I, like I said before, that's still a challenge the ecosystem needs to solve. That's still a challenge um, that we need all of us have to think about in India. How, how does that get solved? I think it happens with more government participation. Uh, recently, they announced insurance companies will be able to participate in the in startup funds now. Uh, that should improve. Uh, that should enlarge the pipe of capital available to VCs and AIFs in general. And hopefully, a, la a larger quantum of that goes into deep tech. Uh, so certainly, I think the specialization into deep tech will, like I said before, it will accelerate. And I think, of course, uh, in the meantime, uh, working with uh, non-Indian investors into these companies will continue to be a top priority. I think if if you've learned something from you know last 10-15 years in the Indian ecosystem, I think one big success story definitely really fuels any particular ecosystem, right? Uh, and you know, Flipkart was a key breakthrough. Right, which led to you know creation of so many unicorns and global influx of capital and growth. I think same. I think we can expect and we should hope for in the deep tech. The first, you know, unicorn deep tech company will uh, open the floodgates if we could say so. And I'm sure that then Indian investors and LPs uh, or sources of capital will also get uh, will double down on uh, funds and founders that are solving these problems. It's I think we're on the cusp somewhere in the next few years. Right. Uh, hopefully, each of our portfolios has something there. Yeah, I can't wait to actually see 3D printed uh, launch vehicles up in the lower Earth orbit. So, Arjun, I'm quite excited about Agnikul in general. Yeah, we are super excited about that as well, among many others. But yeah, you know, the, uh, let's hope that Agnikul and a few others are able to break this barrier of being the pure deep tech company built out of India to become, you know, a unicorn and beyond and uh, that will open up so many doors i think it'll it'll just snowball right it'll have more entrepreneurs come in right because i also hear this question uh you know are there enough entrepreneurs are there enough ideas just like pranav said right and they worry whether quality is there right i think it's there of course if you compare the broader startup ecosystem maybe it is five percent maybe it is ten percent i don't know it's as low as that but that's bound to happen right but uh we're something we are on the cusp and that's why I think the next 10 years is super exciting. So maybe just to tear off with a lot of advice from the three of you, if uh, founders uh, want to come in front of you, want to be in front of you with their deep tech ideas, what is the best way to do that? What are the few tricks and tips that you can tell them? Uh, today, we have a bunch of founders listening uh, uh, to help you guys, like for them to get in front of you guys. I would say that, uh, can I go? Yes, please, Chinu, go for it. So work with the right VC. It is very important uh, because each of each of us have some specialities and uh, have network and connections built over the years. Work with the right VC. That is very important. And think long term and work with the right VC. Um, the second thing is actually uh, you have to work backwards and make sure who is likely to buy you five years down the road. And you know if you're thinking about setting yourself for an auto ecosystem, then you think about who is likely to buy you. Third, make sure that uh, you know, like you have complementary uh, founder, founder skill set. One could be techie, one could be in uh, tech commercialization, other could be a CBO. It's very important to have a complementary founder, uh, you know, like a team skill set. Actually, these are the three things I would say. There are many, but I think 
these are the three things I would say right away. Of course, Chinu has mentioned correctly what is important. I will highlight one thing, right? Given the nascency of the ecosystem, I think founders should, of course, come super prepared for why they are the right team to solve this particular problem, right? And why now? But also be prepared to educate even the existing investors, right? Because although we are in the deep tech ecosystem, right? And, you know, Chinu and Pranav and their funds have done uh, a great job in doing more and more, right? We also need to be educated about the niche, about the particular technological innovation the founder has probably spent 10, 15, 20 years of his, his or her life building, right? So I think come with that mindset that it's not just a pitch, but it's also continuous education about what you're solving, how you're solving, or differentiation, right? Other technological innovations happening in and around the sector that you are solving for and why this is the future, right? So education, even for us, is equally important. I think from all the research and analysis and thesis building that we do, I think nothing teaches us more than spending time with the founders, right? Before an investment, of course, after the investment, it accelerates. But, uh, you know, if founders do come in with that mindset, that it'll take time, let's build a relationship and let's use the opportunity to educate investors, right? They will find more success is my view. I'd add, Abhiti, that I think that the, the single biggest determinant for us is the conviction in the founding team. Uh, deep tech founders have the, I'd say, almost unnatural advantage that they know a lot more about what they're doing than most people from a generalist sense. But what's missing usually is, that, you know, because they've heard no so many times, especially, especially in India, deep tech is still very hard to do. They've heard no so many times that there's an erosion of conviction, there's an erosion of confidence. And that's, uh, that's really disheartening to see. So the first thing we do whenever we meet any, any founders, especially in deep tech, is we, is we really give them confidence that, look, this is an important problem to solve, right? Uh, and we, uh, before they share, uh, what, what, of course, what they're pitching and so on, uh, we're the first ones to volunteer why we think there's an, this is an idea worth solving or what are the some of the challenges we've seen in this space. And we try to open up as much so that there's a, like I said before, a meeting of minds and founders become comfortable that they can really speak their mind, that they can be a little bit more confident and show that they have conviction in what they're doing. Of course, uh, deep tech is also far riskier. Uh, there is, like we discussed before, less capital. Uh, so I absolutely agree. Uh, if you're going to a VC fund, you'd want to screen for investors who can stick with you over multiple rounds. Uh, you'll, of course, want to prepare for both the best case and the worst case. Uh, worst case being you're delayed, the IP is taking more time, it's taking more, more time to deliver to customers. Uh, you'd want more patience on your cap table. So in many ways, I think um, uh, whether it's a large fund, a small fund, you can screen for how that relationship is built, uh, how much patience there is when they're talking to you. And of course, uh, if both sides believe that the idea will shape out uh, in a similar way. Uh, so that's, it's, it's a, this is a lot of subjective screening, of course. You can't write rule books for what, what we're saying. But that's really where I think we found uh, the best relationships being built with deep tech founders. Thank you, three of you. This has been actually wonderful. And uh, definitely the sleeping giant that we have named Deep Tech is about to wake up with people such as yourself in the ecosystem. So I'm more and more excited about the decade and uh, hope we hear more about all your companies doing really well in the world. So thank you so much for taking time out today. Thank you, Akriti, for having us. Lovely thank conversation you, with Chinu and Pranav. Thank, thank you. Guys. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.